Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. This week, our lead pastor, Mike Yearly, continues our series titled The Marriage Matrix. He'll be reading out of the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 3, with a message titled Soulmates, Part 2, Sexuality and Spirituality. Well, good morning. Wow, what a day out there, huh? Just gorgeous. Uh, this has been the week, hasn't it? You got the fires, you got the winds, had a little bit of rain last night, now a nice day today, and uh, we're still in October. It's like, uh, here it's supposed to be 80 degrees tomorrow, October. I think that should be illegal. I think that certain point, you know, no more 80s, but uh, just good to be with you today. My name's uh, Pastor Mike, and uh, we're in the midst of a series here called The Marriage Matrix. We're actually in the fourth week of a five-week series. And so if you're first time here, I want to welcome you. Inside of your uh, program, weekend program, is a white uh, message note sheet that help you follow along, so I encourage you to take that out uh, the, the, um, to help you throughout the service. <coughs> okay, so you ready to go? Ready to go? <laughs> oh, yeah, we get to talk about sex today. Uh, so I just need to give a little warning. Um, there will be moments today we get a little bit earthy. Um, and so I just want to, if you are in here and you have young children or something, uh, it's your call, but just a word, a word, a heads up so it doesn't take you by surprise, all right? So, uh, so here we go. Father, thank you so much for this uh, chance to be together. And we're just excited about what you're doing in our church. We're excited what you're doing in our lives. We're excited that you have a plan and a purpose for each of our lives, that you're coming after us, God, that you didn't just let us walk away and let us go, but you came after us and and through your son, Jesus, and that you can still pursue us by your spirit. And so, Lord, we're excited today to turn around, to respond to you, to listen to you, to to pull our lives into alignment. And so we pray that throughout this service, God, that you'd just be here with us. You'd help us to listen clearly, carefully, help us to be open to what you want to say. And as a life of result, our lives will be changed and transformed in the process. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the story starts in 1940s. Uh, it's, it's a small uh, Christian college in the East Coast called Columbia uh, Bible College, South Carolina. And that's where they first met. And uh, he, he first saw her in a chapel meeting. And she was sitting right in front of him. And she was running her long and beautiful artistic fingers through her through her, uh, her brown, shiny hair, and uh, something about those fingers, you know, just grabbed him. And so uh, after, the, after the chapel service, he introduced himself, and they began to spend some time together. And it wouldn't take long before he was captivated by this woman. She was, she was beautiful. She was bright. She was witty. She was charming. She was a great storyteller. She loved people. And he found her to be one of the most fun people that he'd ever spent time with in his life. And so within a few for, uh, short months, they began dating and their relationship began to grow, and it was in 1948, Valentine's Day, 1948, that he proposed to her, and she said yes, and it was August of that summer that they got married. And so they started this journey together, this, uh, this journey of two becoming one, and over the next 20 years, they would have six children together, and they would travel the world, they would live around the world serving in different kinds of ministries but in 1968, they got the call. They, he was being invited back to Columbia Bible College where they first met to be the president of the college. It was a great honor. It was, uh, it was, he, he just never, something he never saw coming. His name was Robertson, uh, Dr. Robertson McQuilkin. Her name was Muriel. And he was very famous. He became a, Christian, a famous Christian leader, nationally known, internationally known, had his own radio show. She became famous in her own right. She would 
teach at the classes at the college. She would speak at women's events. She would often appear on radio and TV shows in the area. And for the next 10 years, they just had an amazing ministry. But in 1978, it started. Everything changed. Everything went good up at that point. But in 1978, it all began to unravel. It started on a a trip they took, a vacation down to Florida. They went down to visit some friends, and while they were driving in the car one day, the four of them, she was telling one of her famous stories, and she was such a great storyteller. Everyone loved her stories, but the only thing was is that she had just told this story a few minutes before. It was the first time it happened, but it wasn't the last. In the coming months, she would begin to forget other things. She would begin to forget that how to put together her menus for her famous dinner parties at their house. She would be up speaking in front of a group and would forget her, her lines, forget her story, forget what she was telling. And in 1981, three years later, the doctors confirmed what, what he had feared all along, that she was developing Alzheimer's disease. It was one of those painful times in his life as he watched this, his wife, his partner, the love of his life, this joyful, creative engaging person slip away one day at a time. It was actually harder for him than for her. She realized something was not quite right, but she never realized she had Alzheimer's. As the years went by, she began to get worse and worse, and pretty soon she couldn't speak in full sentences. She could only speak in words. The only one sentence that she could remember was one that she would say to him all the time, and it was the three simple words, I love you. And so after a few years, as she was declining, he went to the board of trustees at his college and said, hey, I think it's time for you to begin thinking about a successor for me. They were shocked because he still had many years to go before retirement. And, and so some of his friends tried to talk him out of it. They said, hey, you know, Muriel, they have, they have homes for, for people with Alzheimer's and she'll be well taken care of and she probably won't even know that she's there and I'm sure she'll be comfortable, but... He thought about it, but he said, you know, I'm not sure she would be comfortable, and I'm not sure there'd be anyone there who would really love her, and I'm not sure there'd be anyone there who would, I I know there's no one there who would love her like I love her. And so he went back to the board of trustees, and he said, the time will come when Muriel needs me full time, and when that time comes, I will be there for her. So he continued teaching at the college, and she continued to decline. After a little bit more time, the board of trustees approached him and offered to, pro- to provide a live-in nurse that would live in during the day with his wife so that she would always have someone with her. And so they tried that, and it worked for a while, but then she began to sneak out. She wanted to find her husband. They lived about a half mile away from the college, and so as many as 10 times a day, she would sneak out. And she'd make that half-mile track there and the half-mile track back. And sometimes when he put her to bed at night, Her feet would be bloody from these tracks that he'd taken. And so finally in 1990, it came to the point where he realized the time had come. He'd made a promise long ago, over 40 years before, he'd made a promise to this woman that she would be the most important person in his life, that he would always be there for her, he would always love her. He'd promised to love her in sickness and in health and good times and bad times, riches and poverty. And and now was a time of sickness. And it was time for him to keep his commitment. And so to the surprise of so many around him, he resigned from his prestigious position and he began to give care to his wife full time. By 1998, she had not spoken a word for four years. 
She could no longer take care of herself, and he would have to take care of her full-time every day. 1998 came their 50-year anniversary. Not heard her speak for four years. And yet he wrote in his journal that day, and this is what he wrote. He said, uh, Muriel seems to still have affection for me. What more really could I ask? I have a home that's full of love and laughter. Many couples with their wits about them don't have that. Muriel is very lovable. She's more dear to me now than ever. And when she reaches out to me in the night hours or smiles contentedly and lovingly as she awakes, I thank the Lord for his grace to us and I ask him to let me keep her. Today we're continuing our series, The Marriage Matrix. If this is your first time here, we want to welcome you. And this is our fourth message out of five messages. In the series, if you're new, it flows out of something that Jesus once said. He was once asked a question about marriage and divorce. And he said, if you want to understand God's vision for marriage, you have to go back to the beginning. You have to go back to the garden. You have to go back to the first man, the first woman, back to the events that transpired and were recorded in Genesis 1 to 3, back to what we're calling the matrix, the source, the situation out of which all marriages have come. And what we're doing is every week we're going back and looking at these key passages, Genesis 1 to 3, to look at some of the key statements, the key events that happened there to understand both God's vision for marriage, what went wrong, and how do we get back to the garden? And of course, if, you're, if we're married, we have obvious application to our lives right here, right now. But for those of you who are single, I just have a heart for you in this series and very much have written this series with you in mind because the very first step towards achieving the vision is being clear on what you're shooting for, clear on the kind of person you need to be looking for, the kind of a relationship you want to develop, the kind of person you need to become. So our topic today is one that we started last week. It's on what it means to be a soulmate. Today is soulmates part two. If you were here last week, we talked about four key ingredients, four puzzle pieces. I have this image in my mind of one of those little children's puzzles that are made out of wood that maybe a two-year-old or a three-year-old would put together. And they might only have three or four pieces, and you put them together. You have to have all four pieces to see the apple or the ship or whatever it is that you're building. And in a similar way, that what I'm suggesting is that there's four key ingredients or puzzle pieces when you want to, uh, what it takes to become truly one, and that all four are important. So last week we talked about the first two. We talked about priority, and we said that in order to become soulmates, that we have to make this person, both parties need to become, say, this person is the most important person in my life, and I will make them my top priority person, and I will always make them my top priority person. That's the first commitment. The second ingredient was the commitment of intimacy. And by this, remember, we talked about emotional intimacy, the sharing of souls, sharing the deepest part of me with the deepest part of you. It's in the sharing of souls that we become soulmates. That was one and two. This week we're going on, and we're looking at quadrant three and quadrant four. In fact, if you turn the page there, you'll see a section, and it's called the sharing of soulmates connecting the quadrants. And so today we're going to fill in uh, two more blanks, 
and we're going to talk about sexuality and spirituality. And so I want to get started. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with you to Genesis chapter 2, this passage where we've been spending a lot of time the last couple weeks. And if you're new to this series, in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible lays out the, the story of the creation of the first man and the first woman. But like I've pointed out every week, that when God created the first man, he did not create him the same way as the first woman. The first man was created out of the dust of the earth. God took the physical elements in the soil, re-orchestrated them, kind of mixed them up, and created the first body of the man and then breathed life into him. When he created the first woman, though, he did not create her out of the soil. He created it from the side of the man, from the one he created a second, two. And uh, they were made from the same stuff, from the same DNA. And, and this was intentional. From the one becomes the two so that the two can come back together and be one. That marriage at its core is about a shared life. It's about two becoming one. And so when he brings the woman to the man, the man understands right away what's happened. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 23, <laughs> the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she would be called woman for she was taken out of the man. We're made from the same stuff. She's, she's bone of my bone. She's flesh of my flesh. We're, we're from the one has come the two. And he says, for this reason, verse 24, for this reason, because of the way the woman was created, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. For this reason, because from the one comes the two, so the two can become one. For this reason, a man will leave these most important relationships in life, and he will make his wife his most important relationship. That they will become each other's top priority relationship. That's the first ingredient we talked about. And they will come together to be one, because that's what marriage is about. It's about Two, becoming one. It's about the shared life. But what we see here is it's not just about the priority, that you're the most important person. It's not just about intimacy, the sharing of the deepest part of me, the sharing part of the, the deepest part of you. There's this third ingredient, and that's the sexual ingredient. And he says in verse 24, and they will become one flesh. And then so, so they're not only uh, one in terms of commitment, one in terms of the shared inner life, they're one physically. We call it body and soul. They're designed to be one. Now, just as we've seen um, in last week, you know, if you're here last week, we talked about this, how in the early stages of a couple's relationship, we've been calling it the rocket blast stage, when a, when a couple falls in love. In the early stages of a relationship, all these ingredients tend to happen kind of naturally. So we saw last week, for example, when a couple first meets and falls in love, they, they naturally make each other the most important person in their life. When a couple meets and falls in love, they naturally t- have a tendency to share the deepest part of me with the deepest part of you. That's very natural. We saw that once they move out of the rocket blast stage and into the orbit stage of marriage, at some point that changes and we have to be more intentional about this. But it's very natural at first. Well, in the same way, this is true with this third quadrant, this third piece of the puzzle, sexuality. That when a couple first meets and they fall in love, it's very naturally for them to want to come come together physically, right? Like you see this in a couple, that uh, they meet, and how do you know when a a couple has become a couple? Um, you, You know it when they start holding hands, 
right? That's the first signal. Oh, they're together, see? See, I thought it, I knew it, we were all talking about it. But now we know it. Why? Because they've taken the first step of two becoming one. You see? They're, they're two, now they grow hands, the two are becoming one, aren't they? They've taken the first step down this journey. And now as they begin to get more serious in their relationship, there's going to be coming together not only of hands, but of hugging, right? Body to body. Uh, there's going to be coming together of lips to lips and kissing. There's going to be other steps along the way that I'm not going to go into. <laughs> but it's going to end up when the two come together sexually, right? Two coming one. It's, you see the process? It's a natural process. It's like when a couple falls in love, there's a desire to merge physically. They've started, and, and for Christ-following followers of Jesus, the, the difficulty is not coming together. The, the difficulty is not coming together too fast, right? That's the challenge. That we want to do this in the right order. We want to connect emotionally. We want to connect with our commitment to love each other the rest of our lives. We call that marriage. And then we come together physically. That's God's order. So that's, that's the challenge. The challenge is not to not come together too quickly. It's, it, it's, a, it's, come, it's a challenge not to come together too quickly, right? That's it. Okay, so, so in the early stages of rocket blast, just like with priority, just like with intimacy, there's a natural pull towards oneness. But here's the interesting thing, and this is a shocker, a big surprise to so many couples when they get married is that when you get to marry, when you get married, sexuality is not near as easy as you imagine. Uh, in fact, when you stop and think about it, the only picture we have of sexuality primarily in our culture is Hollywood. And if you stop and think about it, Hollywood is almost always portraying the rocket blast stage of a relationship, right? And that's our model. Holly, th- stop and think about it. When was the last time you saw a movie that was, the emphasis was on sexual married love. Here's a couple, they're in love, and now we have a bedroom scene. Really? Right? Really? You see what I'm saying? That we don't see that. So what we see is rocket blast stage. We assume that's what married life was like. And this is the biggest shock in the world to many couples, and not all, but many couples, they get married and all of a sudden it's not as easy as it looks. It's like all of a sudden this incredible gift that seemed so natural before has now become a battleground. Now it's become a war zone. Now it's become a zone where, where a, a, a husband and wife are not connecting. It's actually becoming a weapon in their marriage, right? Very, very common. And so we want to talk, well, why is that? And sometimes the reason that happens is just because of busyness. And we talked about that last week. You get busy, life gets complex, you're taking the kids to soccer games, you're going all around the world, you've got a job to take care of, everyone's exhausted. And so all you need to kind of restore, relight the passion is just get away. You get some time alone, you know, get some downtime, some time to connect, and that, that solves the issue. But for many couples, it's much deeper than that. And, and one of the biggest reasons we have a hard time becoming one sexually in marriage is because men and women are so different from each other because we're wired so differently. Like, like let me give you a couple examples here. Um, let me tell you some things you probably already know. But have you ever noticed when it comes to sex, men and women are wired differently? And, and it's like, I mean, there's been a ton of research on this as if we didn't know. Um, and let me say this. And the teaching I'm about to do, I'm going to be talking about most men and most women. 
Now, some of you are the exception to the rule. I understand that, all right? Some of you, uh, your men more wired wire like women, and women like more women, whatever, the stereotypes. And that's fine. I'm going to give you some generalities. They're generally true. That's why we call them generalities, all right? If you're an exception, you just take the opposite piece of advice and apply it to your life, all right? I just know there's going to be some people, I'm not like that. Okay, well, whatever. So just, I've, I've now, I'm now disengaged. We've now undercut that. All right, so here we go. Okay, so, so here we go. So like for most men, most men, in the sexual relationship, the physical is more important than the emotional, right? Now, now this doesn't mean that the emotional isn't important, but it means that, that the physical part of sex, which is usually triggered lar- largely by visuals, right, the visual attraction, that, that this is the most important part of sex. This is what gets a man wired. And so what happens in a sexual relationship is, is also men are much more, they're just quicker to respond sexually. So for example, uh, I often call men in this department the microwaves in the relationship, right? Because they can go from zero to 60 very quickly. Uh, they can go from being cold to hot, two minutes, right? Just put it on, put it on the microwave. Just very quick responders. And what this means, if you ask the man, uh, uh, most men, like, when's a good time for sex? They're going to kind of look at you like, what do you mean? I, there is no right time, like a wrong time, <laughs> you know. Um, you got to be in the right mood. Are you kidding me? No, you know. Um, so, so you see, men are much more responsive. And also, one way that men are different is that the physical is, is much more important. It's much more of a driving force. There's been a ton of studies of this where they do research and they ask men, how many times a day do you think about sex? I'll ask women, how many times a day you think about sex? And I mean, it's like night and day. I mean, study after study, I mean, it's like gobs more, you know, on the male side. So, so this is, you've got the man, okay? That's who, who husbands are. Okay, now let's talk about the wives. <laughs> this is where I'd like you to start your praying for me as I move into the Holy of Holies right here. I, I feel like I'll need Jesus' extra help at this time. Um, so, Lord, in the name of the Father and the Son... Okay, now, now, women are much more complicated as a general rule when it comes sexually. Uh, for, for most women, again, most, for most women, um, that, that sex is as much or more about the emotional connection than it is about the physical connection. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that the physical component of sex is not important. I'm just saying that of the two, it's the emotional connection that's more important. The sex is part of this emotional connection that happens. And what this means is for most women is that in, in marriage, and remember I'm talking about in marriage, because in the rocket blast stage, this can be different. In the rocket blast stage, women can be more like men than normal. But in, in, the, in the orbit stage of a marriage, that for most women, in order to be sexually um, responsive in the relationship, the conditions need to be Right? Okay? So what are those conditions? Those conditions are things like emotional connection. That a wife needs to feel emotionally connected for a husband. She needs to know what's going on inside of him. What's going on inside of me? Do we understand one another? Do we know one another? Do I get your world? Do you get my world? Are we emotionally connected? Do you treasure me? Do you honor me? Do you respect me? You see? And, and under this kind of canopy, under this kind of relationship, 
for some reason, the, the woman's heart is able to respond. I actually believe that God has designed it this way to protect women's hearts because of the sensitivity. Is that there's a sense of which, hey, I'm not going to respond unless I have a man who knows me and loves me and is protecting me. It's a safe place. Okay. So, I often compare women more to crockpots than <laughs> microwaves. All right. Now, again... I realize there are exceptions out there. There are some microwave women in this congregation. I understand you. I will not ask for a show of hands. But most women are more like a crockpot. In other words, sex is something that flows out of the whole relationship. It's not something that, hey, okay, time for bed, let's go. It's something... It's something that happens earlier in the day. It's something that happens out of the week. It's something that, it's out of the emotional connection, out of the love relationship. It's out of the whole relationship that sex flows. And when the relationship's right, then the sexual response is there, you see. Okay, so what this means then is, is for us as husbands and wives, if we're serious about pursuing God's vision for oneness sexually, it means that we have to learn some things that we have to make some changes. So what I want to do is I want to talk to men. I want to talk to us first. And then women, I want to talk to you second. And I want to talk about some of these changes that need to happen if a couple is serious about recapturing God's vision for the sexual, for the passion that we're designed for. Okay, so men, let's start with us. What this means, men, is that for us to create an environment where our wives can respond, we need to be creating a safe environment for them which means that we need to create an environment where we are emotionally connected to our wives. This is what most wives are looking for. Do you love me? Do you treasure me? Uh, is there affection in our relationship? Do I feel connected? And if so, in that environment, I can respond to you. I can give myself to you. Outside that environment, it just feels like this act that's disconnected from our relationship. And honestly, I have a hard time responding to that, you see? And so there's a great verse there um, on uh, uh, 1 Peter 5, 7. And I, I put it down in the New American Standard Version. <coughs> it goes like this. It says, husbands. So here's God's advice to us as husbands. I want you to live with your wives in an understanding way. And that's a great phrase. The Bible says, okay, men, here's your, here's your charter. Here's your assignment. Live with your wife in an understanding way. Take time to understand your wife, to love your wife, to know your wife, to be gentle with your wife, be sensitive to your wife, to treasure your wife. And it goes on, and it says, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Honor her, okay? Respect her. Treat her with respect. Now, this is what most wives are looking for, and this is what unlock, unlocks the door for most wives to respond physically to their husband is this environment where they feel treasured, loved, and respected. Um, now, let me take it one step further. This is especially important in the bedroom, okay? So it's important in all of life because a woman's sexual response flows out of the whole relationship, not just out of the moment, but it's very important in the moment too. Because guys, since we're so physically driven that often if we're not careful, we can make that moment kind of like a, a sprint to the finish line. And what our wives really need to know is this is not about us getting our needs met. 
This is about us laying down our lives for our wives in this most intimate part of the relationship. You know, in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. And there's no more important for us as men to lay down our, our, our lives, our needs, than in the bedroom. It's here as we come, I am here to serve you. I am here to come at this together, to meet your needs in this moment, to take care of you. It's when a woman is in that environment where she feels safe and protected and taken care of and loved, she is able to respond, you see? And so this is our calling as men, is if we want are serious about approaching oneness in the relationship, we need to uh, move with love, affection, connection. That's what a wife needs. Now, let me talk to those wives. And let me say this, that for most wives, and, and you may not be average, but for the average wife, okay, for the average wife, the average wife has no clue how important sexuality is to her husband. And this is no fault of your own because it's a biological thing. We are wired differently. Our brains are wired differently. The way we're, we're wired to response is different. Study after study has shown this. And so it's, it's hard for a woman to understand her husband because you just have no context for it. There's nothing in you that is that same way. But, but I think it's safe to say that the average wife has no clue how important sexuality is to her husband, what an important need this is. Um, there's a great book. It's called the His Needs, Her Needs. It's on your note sheets. You have it if you want to check into it. But it's by, written by a Christian counselor. His name is Willard Harley Jr. And, and uh, he specializes in marriages to affair-proof marriages or to help marriages who've gone through an affair to heal. And so he's done research with 40,000 couples. And here's what he's found. He's, he describes a great marriage a great marriage is one in where, is which both sides are meeting the other person's top needs. So, for example, I love that definition. So, for example, what are your top five needs in a marriage? What are your spouse's top five needs in marriage? A great marriage is one where you're meeting each other's top needs. And he takes it one step further, and based on all his research, he's come up with these, what he calls the five top needs of most men, five top needs of most women. Now, again, There'll be some flip-flop in here, but most men, most women, all right? And so, um, so guess what? The number one need for a woman, based on his research, is affection, okay? So this explains why men, why sex is so tied to affection for a woman. So for a wife to be able to respond, she needs to be in that treasured place where she's sensing affection, that's going to be what unlocks the key to passion in her life. Okay? Well, guess what the number one need for most men is? <laughs> one brave soul. Sex. Yes. Right. He calls it sexual fulfillment. It sounds better that way. <laughs> now, the funny thing is the second need, I'm, I'm not going to give you all five needs, but the second need for men, interestingly, is companionship. That, that most husbands, if sex is their top need, their second need is for a buddy, a friend, someone just to do life together with. But anyway, so, so a top need for most men, he says, according to his research, is, is sex, sexual fulfillment. Now, honestly, for many wives, there is, um, 
And not only does, do most wives not understand this, that for many wives, they don't approve of this. Okay? That this is saying, is, um, well, are you kidding me? Really? Are you that shallow? You see? It's sort of like, boy, that is superficial. I can't, I, I would like a little bit more depth here. You're, you're kidding me. That's your top need. And yet, this is the way that a man is wired physiologically, brain-wise, body-wise, this is the way a man is wired. And so, so here's what happens, is that not only is a, a man wired this way, but now look what's happening. When a man gets married, what he does is he takes his top need in his life and he gives it to this one woman in all the world and he says, okay, I'm gonna trust you to meet this most important need in all my life. Now, do you understand what that is? Uh, do you understand that? Most important need, he is now making a commitment. He will not seek that need to be met with any other woman, any other time and place, that he will take this top need and he is trusting it with his wife. It's a very vulnerable thing to do and it puts a man in a very vulnerable place. And it explains why husbands who have a wife who understands this need and are committed to this, why it touches a man's heart so deeply because his wife is understanding him and, and reaching out to love him. Um, you can understand, um, too, by looking at this, you can understand now, you can understand what happens in a marriage where a husband is not meeting his wife's need for affection, top need, or a wife is not meeting his top need for sexual fulfillment. Do you see what happens in a relationship like this? You have now created a very vulnerable relationship, haven't you? Obviously, this doesn't give any rights or rationale for the wife to say, you're not meeting my emotional needs, I'm going outside, or for the man to say, you're not meeting my physical needs, I'm going outside. But you can understand why it creates a vulnerable relationship where each one of their top needs are not being met. And so when affairs happen, more often than not, women have affairs to get their emotional needs met. Men, men do affairs to get their physical needs met, you see? Okay, so very important uh, to understand the man that you're, you're married to. Now, um, this is just so critical. I was talking with a buddy of mine about a year ago. This guy that's in ministry, um, used to work at a Christian uh, campus, and uh, he was on faculty there, and uh, we were talking about this, and he was, he was talking about they, that they have a very good marriage, and he and his wife will often counsel like other young married couples who are kind of struggling in this area. And uh, when they do that, the wife will often tell these young, these young married wives uh, when they're together, she'll talk to them about this. And she'll say, let me just be really frank. She says, you know, my husband, every time spring comes along, he's on this college campus with these beautiful co-eds, you know, around. And it comes to spring, and they begin uh, kind of just kind of dressing very scantily, you know. And just a little sidebar here is, uh, women, that probably you have no way of understanding the impact that your clothing has on the men around you. Um, I, I've talked to many women, and I, I'm convinced, especially in the Christian community, that the most, most uh, women are really wanting to honor God in the way that they dress. They're not trying to be seductive. They're not trying to any, trying to cause any problems. But often, these have a very um, unrealistic understanding of what you're wearing, the way the impact it has. 
And this is why the New Testament talks about this, about the importance of modesty for Christ-following women, because the visual nature of men, you see, and, and that's why that all pieces together. But anyway, so go back to the story. So, so she says it comes to spring, and here's these, these, you know, these young co-eds, and they're wearing low-cut low and uh, you know, clingy, uh, tight, short, you know, whatever the thing is. And, and she said, and what, here's the counsel she'd give these young wives. She says, if you think I'm letting my husband on that campus with a loaded gun, you're crazy. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Now, I'm not going a lot more into that. <laughs> I'll let you figure out different ways. But, uh, hey, but this is important stuff, isn't it? It's important stuff, and it's often the Christian community, we haven't talked about it candidly enough. And so I find in counseling Christian couples for the year, this whole area of sexuality is a big one. It's a really big one, and it often flows because we don't understand the differences, the way we're wired. We haven't learned to uh, grow and to meet each other's needs in this area. So what does this look like? What does it look like in a couple that are serious about being Christ followers? They want to get their vertical relationship with Christ aligned like we talked about week two. They want to recapture the character of the creator we talked about the second week. Um, What does it look like in this area of sexuality? Well, it looks like here's a husband. Here's a husband who is learning to connect with his wife. He's learning to share the deepest part of him, the deepest part of her. He's learning to affirm her, take care of her, um, and creating an environment where she can respond and her passion can be unlocked. And for the woman, what does it look like? Uh, it's, a woman looks like that she understands her husband's needs. And it's in, this is an interesting thing, is that for, uh, for women, most women intuitively understand this during the dating process, the rocket stage, uh, you know, rocket ball stage. Like, so you, for those of you women who are married, probably my guess is the first time you went on a date with your husband, that you didn't meet him in the door with an old set of sweat clothes and kind of say, here I am, take me or leave me. Uh, my, my experience has been that most women intuitively understand this, that men are visually wired, that beauty is really important, it's an important part. And so when you're pursuing a man, that often you'll spend a lot of time uh, preparing for that. It's a lot of time, which clothes to wear, which dress to wear, which pants to wear, what, which thing, how do I look? And, and because intuitively you understand this, that men are drawn to beauty, they're drawn to attractiveness, and so you really go all out. The sad thing is, is for some wives, and I'm not saying across the board at all, but for some wives, there almost is a switch that turns after marriage. It's almost like, well, I've kind of got him now, you know? And, and there's a sense of which, well, you have that need, but boy, that's not really a legitimate need. I think that's superficial. I think you need to grow out of that need. And so, so what does it look like for a wife to be pursuing? It looks like this wife is saying, I understand how God's made you. I understand how you're wired. And I'm really going to reach out to you. And under your covering of love and understanding and safety, I'm going to really seek to meet your needs. And I'm going to take responsibility. And I'm going to take the initiative to meet this top need in your life to show you I love you. Now, what happens when a husband is reaching out to meet his wife's top need and a wife is reaching out to meet a husband's top need? You have an incredible potential for passion an incredible potential for a bond that ties them together. In fact, there in your note sheet, there's a great quote from a couple guys, Bob Burns and Tom Whiteman, who wrote the book, um, The Fresh Start Divorce Recovery Workbook, which is a great book. I want you to follow along. (coughs) Here's what they say. 
Sexuality is a human potential for sharing one another's life with one another. It's the ability and the need imprinted upon our nature by the Creator to give ourselves completely to another human being. It's also the need and ability to receive another person into our life completely. The romantic expression, body and soul, perhaps says it best. I have the ability and the need to give myself all of myself and body and soul of myself to another person. I have the ability and need to receive another, all of another, the body and soul of another into my life. Now this understanding of sexuality helps us to gain a correct understanding of sexual intercourse. It's a symbol, it's an emblem of the total life sharing that God requires those who marry. In sexual intercourse, one person actually enters the body of another, an outward expression of what exists between the souls of two people who are totally committed to each other. Understood this way, intercourse is lifted out of the merely physical realm. The spiritual aspect is what makes sex unique in all of God's creation. You see, sex, this this third quadrant is an important piece of pursuing oneness. Now, let me say this. I know that for some of you here, this is probably a hard concept to grasp onto because you may have been brought up or taught that sex is a bad thing or at best it's it's a necessary evil. But you know, what the Bible says, in fact, in your life groups, you'll be studying this this week, that that sort of teaching that, that marriage or the sexual aspect of marriage is bad, what, it will teach, what you'll see in the New Testament is that the New Testament says that's actually demonic teaching, that that actually comes from the dark side. And one of the things I'm going to ask you to do in your life groups this week is to reflect on that. Okay, so why would Satan try to twist this in certain Christian circles? What does he gain by that if we buy into the lie? In fact, I'd like you to go back with me for just a second to a passage in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 again. We'll go back to where we stopped. Genesis 2.25. And it says, um, And the man and his wife were both naked. Now, I want us to say that together. It's just good for us, all right? So The man and the wife were both naked. naked. One more time. The man and his wife were both naked. naked. It's kind of hard to say that in church, isn't it? Okay. Okay, here we go. And they felt no shame. I'll try it again. And they felt no shame. Let's put it all together. So the man and the wife, they were both naked, and they felt no shame. Wow. How many times in our lives we do feel shame? Something has gone wrong, right? God creates first man, first woman, beautiful, perfectly physically, beautiful garden. He creates them naked, and his first instructions are become one flesh. You see the freedom in that? You see God's vision in that? Years ago... I read a book. Uh, there's a lady named Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you may recognize that name. Elizabeth uh, was married to Jim Elliot, and Jim was one of the five missionaries that went in the 1950s to take the gospel to a tribe of Indians, headhunter Indians, the Alka Indians in South America. And they were killed, martyred, doing that. In fact, the movie came out a couple years ago called Into the Spear that chronicles that story. 
after that story, Elizabeth um, wrote their story up. She became a Christian author, writer, leader in her own right, very famous. And, um, and later on, she released a book called Passion and Purity, which is a great book for single Christ followers who want to pursue purity in their lives. And so if you're single, I'd recommend that book. It's on your note sheet. Anyway, so in this book, she tells their story of being single and pursuing purity together, passionate purity. But they're both very passionate people. They were warriors for Christ. And, and so um, in, the, in the book, she includes this one letter that Jim had wrote to her while they were dating as they were trying to pursue purity and yet um, so drawn together. And, and I want to read you an excerpt from that book because it's just a, such a beautiful picture of the passion we were created for. So he writes to her and he says, I, I need you, darling, and I need you soon. I love you strongly tonight and with a sense of power, a huge surging hope inside me as to the fulfillment of our love. It's not the quiet longing that's usually on me, but the upflung fists and the shouting for possession, both arms eager to crush you to me. It's the bursting heart and the wild eye of passion, the laugh that makes the stomach tighten. You cannot possibly understand this, and I don't really ask you to. It's just one of the ways I love you, and it happens to seize me as I write. Love is not all resting in me. It's a tenseness. It's a daring. It's a call to crush and to conquer. Good night, my brave lover. And may the God who loves you strongly and more strongly than I stand guard over you through the night. Isn't that beautiful? See, it's a picture of passion. It's a picture of oneness, of two becoming one. And so I think what it says to us as Christ's followers is if this is not what's happening in our marriage, we need to step back and say, what is it? What is holding this back? What is getting us in the way? Remember a couple weeks ago, I asked a question when I was up here. What if God created marriage more for our holiness than for our happiness? Remember that? What if, what if God created marriage more as a laboratory for us to grow and become like him, holiness, than just for our happiness? Can I tell you this? That in no other area of marriage do you have such an opportunity to grow to be like God than in the bedroom. Because it's in the bedroom that a husband says, I'm going to slow down and lay down my rights and I am going to love you dearly and I'm going to lay down my life and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to create a safe place for you and I'm going to learn how to connect with you emotionally and I'm going to learn how to be your protector. I'm going to learn how to be your lover. I'm not just going to meet my own needs. I'm going to learn how to serve you. And this is the place where a wife under that covering of leadership learns how to respond to her husband and says, I realize you have trusted me with one of the most important needs of your life. And though I don't always understand that and I can't always relate to that, I am going to serve and love you because I realize how important this is to you. And there in the secret place of their relationship is one of the most amazing opportunities in the world for two to become one, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, and every other way. Now, number four. I won't spend as long as number four, <clears throat> but it's such an important ingredient. The fourth ingredient is the ingredient of spirituality. You 
In Genesis chapter 3, we're told something very interesting. We're told that on the day that Adam and Eve chose to rebel against their creator, that their creator came looking for them. He didn't just leave them. He came looking for them. And we're told that they heard the sound of him walking in the garden in the late afternoon, the cool of the day. It's such an interesting picture. I honestly don't know how this works out. Was this Jesus in his pre-incarnate form taking on physical body to come and meet with him? Maybe so. We don't know exactly. And it doesn't really say, but you get the impression from the text, this was nothing new. It was nothing unusual. It wasn't like, wow, who's that coming in the bushes? It's like they, they knew. They knew God was coming, that he was walking. You get the, the idea this was probably something that happened a lot. Maybe it happened every day. What an amazing picture to picture this first man and this first woman walking with their creator in the cool of the day. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And a, a, a perfect, what, what a picture, um, what, a, what a metaphor for the shared life. It wasn't just Adam and his personal relationship with God and Eve with her personal relationship. They had a shared relationship. It was a picture of the two of them walking in the cool of the three of them. Walk. Isn't that beautiful? What a, what a metaphor for a shared spiritual experience. You know, last week we talked about emotional intimacy, that sharing the deepest part of me with the deepest part of you. But if you stop and think about it, the deepest part of me and the deepest part of you is the part where you connect with God. That is the deepest part of you. And so to share the deepest part of me and the deepest part means that we are going to share that journey, that spiritual journey together. Now here's what I found. Is that often for many couples, many Christ-following couples, this is a very hard thing to do. And I've got a theory on this. My theory is, is that when we're relating to God, that we kind of know intuitively that this is my time and place to be honest. I can't have a relationship with God unless I'm being honest. And so if I'm being my most honest point with God and I invite you to come into the relationship, you're going to see me at my most honest place, aren't you? And so it's a very vulnerable thing to do to invite someone into the presence of God with you. In Latin, there's a phrase. The phrase is quorum deo. It means in the presence of God. I love that phrase, quorum deo. I believe this is God's vision for a marriage that a couple would live in the presence together. They would live quorum deo. It's a scary thing to do. It's a vulnerable thing to do. So what's it look like to live quorum deo? Well, different couples, it will look differently. Let me give you some examples, though. Um, for many couples, it's, it's learning to pray together, to go into the presence together. I was with an elder this week, and he was talking about how important that is in his relationship with his wife, coming before God together, quorum Deo, and having a conversation with God where all the three are part of walking in the garden again. Uh, for some, it's, it's sharing in the Word together. It's reading the Word or doing a devotional together, some way sharing in that together. For some, it's reading a book together, uh, a, a Christian book or a book on marriage and, and coming together before God on that. For some, it's serving together. Um, for some, it's uh, sharing your spiritual gifts with one another. Uh, for some, it's praying for one another, that praying very specifically, what are you facing, what am I facing, and we, we share that experience. I mean, a lot of ways, but can I tell you the most important way to share spiritually, I believe, is in simple conversation. Okay, this is the key. 
that where we come together and I share with you what God is doing in my life and what I'm sensing God say to me and what I'm struggling with in my relationship with God in my life and you sharing with me what is God saying to you, what is God doing in your life, you see, And this can happen simply. It can happen as you go home after a a message like this one on the way home where you're talking in the car about a sermon. It can happen when you go to a life group together and you're sharing together and talking about what you're learning. But it's this conversation that's sharing the deepest part of me with the deepest part of you that ties us together. It's a critical part. You know, throughout this series, I've mentioned several times the uh, book Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts by the Parrots. I have a quote there from them again. They talk about the scientific research that backs up this importance of the shared spirituality. It says there in your note sheet, recently scientific research has backed up what common sense has been telling us for years, mainly that tending to the spiritual dimension of marriage is what, what unites couples in unbreakable bonds. When researchers examine the characteristics of happy couples who've been married for more than two decades, one of the most important qualities was faith in God and spiritual commitment. Sociologist Andrew Greeley surveyed married couples and found that the happiest couples were those who pray together. They go into the presence together. Couples who frequently pray together are twice as likely as those who pray less often to describe their marriage as highly romantic. They also report considerably higher sexual satisfaction and more sexual ecstasy. As strange as it may sound, there is a strong link in marriage between prayer and sex. Sexuality, spirituality. Now, can I tell you something? Honestly, this is not a surprise to me at all. Because what we've been learning in this series is that there's these four quadrants. And the key is connecting the four quadrants. They don't stand on their own. And so we start with that quadrant of priority. You are the most important person in my life and always will be. What does that lead to? Emotional intimacy. I'm able now to trust you with the deepest part of me because you'll always be there and you care about me. And what does that lead to? That leads to sexuality. Under that umbrella of shared life, a woman can respond and a husband can lead the way in that relationship. And it's all built on the shared spirituality, sharing the deepest part of me with the deepest part of me. Can you see you? Can you see how they all they all tie together, don't they? So what does it look like? What does it look like for a couple to become one? What does it look like for them to be soulmates? Well, it takes a lot of shapes and forms, but I think they have a lot in, cup, in common with this couple that we started the day with, with Muriel and Robertson. That connected relationship, the commitment of relationship, the shared life relationship. You know, the end of the story goes like this, that he ended up taking care of his wife for the last 13 years of her life. She finally passed away on September the 19th, 2003, just four years ago. And when she passed away, he wrote a letter to some of his friends. And I want to read you that letter, just a couple lines. He says, for 55 years, Muriel was flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And so, with her passing, it's like a ripping of my flesh and deeper, a tearing of my very bones. But there is also profound gratitude. For the last 10 years, I've delighted in recalling 
happy memories. I still do. No regrets. I'm grateful. His words, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Words, for words first spoken by the first man to the first woman, God's original vision. And this is where God's taking us if we will follow. We will be bone of bone, flesh of flesh, the shared life of soulmates. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this amazing vision of marriage. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. From the one comes the two, so the two can become one. It's all about the shared life. God, we pray that you would be with us. I pray for those single adults that are here today that are hearing this vision. I pray it would capture their hearts so they would know exactly who to look for, who to become, the kind of relationship to pursue. I pray for those of us who are married. I pray, God, that whether our marriage is in a tough place, a medium place, or a great place, that you would continue to paint a picture of your vision and that you would mentor us by your spirit to what the next steps are in fulfillment, experiencing that vision. We pray this in your name. Amen. What a vision. What a vision, true companion, and guess who thought it up? <laughs> guess who thought it up? The creator. May this be a week where God raises this relationship that we call marriage, whether you're single or whether you're married. May it be a week that we begin to, by his spirit, get a new vision for this relationship. It's not the vision maybe you grew up with. Maybe it's not the vision you've experienced. It's God's vision. It's a vision he's calling us to. It's a higher ground. Wouldn't it be an awesome thing if one day this church, church at Rocky Peak, will be known as a place where that vision is coming true? Wouldn't it be an awesome thing to have men and women at your work come to you and say, can we talk about, I've never really seen a relationship like you have with your husband or you have your wife, and can we talk about that, you see? This is the vision that God has created as a vision as Christ callers, he calls, as Christ followers, he calls us to this vision of being soulmates, true companions. May the Lord be with you this week, and I hope you can be back with us next week. You know, next, um, one of the things in Genesis we're told is that when God first created the first man and the first woman, that he, he created them to rule together. They were the first king, the first queen of this whole new world. And in a sense, every marriage is called to rule together as a king and a queen over part of God's kingdom. What does that look like to be a king and a queen in your home? What does that look like to rule over part of God's kingdom in your life, in your family, in your friendships, in your relationships, in your uh, ministries that God calls you to? Hope you can join us next week as we talk about ruling together. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at the Peak, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.